0: Welcome to Viewpoints listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome Dickie Arbiter to Viewpoints. Dickey is a British journalist, TV and radio commentator on the British Royal Family and an international public speaker. Dickey was the press spokesperson for Queen Elizabeth II from 1988 to 2000. In 1996, he was appointed LVO, Large Verbalo, ordinal and that's a, a title bestowed on people who have given great service to uh the commonwealth via the royal family uh welcome to viewpoints sticky morning yeah uh, it's uh, yeah it's morning here and i know uh it's morning there and it's evening here but uh, it's great to have you you on board with us we won't talk about the weather because we've talked about that off air and uh and uh, we don't want to remind you of what you're missing out um richard winston arbiter um how did you get the name dickie
1: well my mother liked to uh, like the name richard but she also liked the name dickie so when when i was in her good books i was Dickie, and when i wasn't i was richard so most of the time in my early childhood i was richard um, but mm-hmm. dickie kind of stuck with me and um although i was born richard winston I got rid of that pretty quickly um quite a few years ago by Dpol so officially I am Dicky Arbiter because I've lived with it all my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Any particular reason for doing it by Dpol because you could have still stayed with um Dicky?
1: Well, I wanted I wanted everything changed. I wanted my passport changed, my driving license changed, the, my uh, my membership of the Inland Revenue changed um and uh, it made good sense to change everything. Um, So I did it by depot, which makes it official um, and recognizable in law, uh, which was the easiest way of doing it. So uh, I have a passport that says Dickie Arbiter. I have a driving license that says Dickie Arbiter. And even the Inland Revenue, when they call me, they say, hello, Dickie, how are you? And I think, oh, God, they want some money. But
0: uh, let's move on from that one. Yes. Now, um, just an aside, did the Queen ever call you Richard in keeping no. with what your mother called you Richard? No,
1: it, it's quite interesting uh, because um, I used to get phone calls, people calling the palace wanting information. And you get a few pompous people calling, say, hello, Richard, how are you? And I said, excuse me, it's Dickie. And they'd carry on Richard until eventually I had to say, well, look, if it's good enough for the Queen to call me Dickie, it's good enough for you. So can we start again?
0: Absolutely good point, fair point, Dickie. Now, you were born during an air raid on London uh, to German-Jewish refugee parents, Dickie. Now, the impact of World War Two on your parents, how has that shaped your life, would you say? Well,
1: you know, war years are very impressionable, whether it's a war, a Second World War, uh, 39 to 45, or whether it's uh, subsequent conquest. Uh, conflicts, whether it's Cyprus, in Kenya, um, in in the Falklands, wherever, Uh, it's always impressionable on on young people. I remember very well, even as a a, a two and three-year-old, bombs falling. I remember the air raid sirens. I remember the the smell of bombed out buildings, the soot. So it was impressionable. Uh, My parents, while they got married, I think it was in 1939, early 1939, uh, their marriage didn't last long my mother pushed off and um, went to join the American Red Cross or something like that. And I was left with my dad until he died when I just turned six. Uh, and then I was in the care of my um, his brother and his sister-in-law, because my father died at the end of December 1946, until they, uh, they found my mother. And I went to live with my mother sort of around about mid to late 1947. Um, impressionable years. Uh, I can remember them as if they were yesterday. Uh, the family say we've got a photographic memory, and I, I tend to remember things by bringing up a picture of the occasion. And um, lo and behold, the, the, the sort of everything, everything in the past crawls forward.
0: Absolutely. Now, after college in London, you became an actor and stage manager in, in South Africa in the Federation of then Rhodesia and Nyasaland. Now, the story behind your acting career and moving to Africa. Um, what was that all about, and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Well, moving to Central Africa at the time, it was then the Federation of Rhodesia and Iceland. My mother had an uncle there. She was a single mum. Uh, she'd had considerable number of boyfriends, and I think she was sort of wanting to escape uh, the horde. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, she had an uncle there who said, well, come out for a holiday. Well, in the mid-50s, you didn't travel 5,000 miles for a holiday. So he sent two sea passages. He had nothing. Uh, she had nothing to lose in in London. Uh, my education, well, we won't talk about that except to say that the headmaster called my mother in uh, the term before I was supposed to do my GCE, saying, Mrs. Arbiter, your son's wasting our time and your money. So um, I left school <laughs> without an exam to my name. Um, Am I disappointed about that? No, not really. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not terribly sure. I've got to where I am at the moment, even talking to you. Had I gone through the sort of whole um, sort of educational system, whether it was uh, finishing school, going to university, and whatever, I think you know your path and, and life is mapped out when you're born, and you you follow that. You sometimes you fall along the way, but you pick yourself off and dust yourself up. Um, so we went to Rhodesia and the first five years I hated because the family said, you wasted your time at school. Uh, you're going to do what we want you to do and then you can go and waste your life and do what you like. So I, I trained as an apprentice electrician. Um, hand on heart, I was pretty good at it. I hated it, but I sort of suffered the indignity of be- becoming a bit of a grease monkey for five years. And the <laughs> day, I, day I finished, I gave my tools away hopped on a train and went off to Johannesburg and then sort of knocked on doors wanting to become an actor. It was a bit hard work, but um, it was a bit of a play period as well.
0: Then you came back to England and uh, was this more of a play period? You turned to TV and radio journalism. Uh, I'd have thought by the end of that, given how you've uh, succeeded in life, you'd have been a pretty good actor, actually.
1: Well, I I wasn't really a pretty good actor. I played at it and <laughs> and I I enjoyed it. You know, we're we're all show people uh, and we all like to be seen and like to be recognised. So I did a bit of acting. I did a bit of stage managing. I joined a children's theatre company in 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 the UK, which was quite an experience. We toured children, uh, schools for six months, and I I, I remember. Um, Some advice given by the director, a lady called Carol Jenner, who virtually started what was then Unicorn Theatre for Children. She said, when you go out, never say to a child, pretend, Um, make an alternative arrangement. And I remember going to a school and I played in one of the plays. There were three infant plays, two junior plays and one senior play. And we went to one school. It was an American school in sort of east of England in Suffolk. And the children came up because I played a wizard, said, Mr. Wizard, can we play with a train? And I, Carol Jenner's words flashed into my head. Don't say pretend. I said, well, we've broken the engine. It's being repaired. But what we'll do, we'll make our own. Now, do you remember what the train did, the noise it did? And they said, yeah, huffa puffer, puff puffer, choo, choo, choo. And before I knew it, I had almost 150 kids um, sort of hanging onto to each other's coattails going through the school, huff-a-puff-a, huff-a-puff-a, choo-choo-choo. So, Carol Jenner's words, never say to a child, pretend, did ring true, and it, it, it actually worked. And I've never said, let's pretend to do something. You either do it or you don't. Mm,
0: yeah, or you yeah, but...
1: improvise, Or you improvise.
0: Absolutely. That's the sort of advice I got from my father when occasionally listened to him. Now, moving forward, press spokesperson for Queen Elizabeth II. um, How did that come about? I haven't been able to check all the records, but not too many people who dropped out of school, trained as sparkies, electricians, um, locked on doors for for acting jobs, end up to be the Queen's press spokesperson. Uh, The story behind that.
1: Well, the story behind that is really quite simple. Um, I was working at the time for a radio station, which was also the national news service for uh, commercial radio. And uh, there was a lot of of royal things happening. I sort of started reporting royals in 1977, the uh, Silver Jubilee, although I'd been reporting bits and pieces beforehand. And around about 1980, the editorial director said, I'm going to apply to Buckingham Palace for you to become a court correspondent, a bit like a lobby correspondent. You've got lobby correspondents at Parliament House who report everything political, who have access to Parliament House in much the same way as they do to the Palace of Westminster here in London. And so the application was made. I said, well, why me? He said, well, you dress properly, you talk properly and I can take you anywhere. And I thought, well, oh, thanks very much. nice compliment. <laughs> So I became a court correspondent, which meant I pretty much had the run of the palace for almost 10 years. Um, I knew everybody. They knew me. I went in every day. I reported everything royal. I'd interviewed most members of the family, uh, excluding the Queen, Princess Margaret, late Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And on the eve of travelling to Australia in 88 for the Queen's Bicentennial Tour, I had a phone call from uh, somebody whom I knew very well in the press office saying and asking me if I was approached would I be interested in joining well I was already reaching the age of 48 and I thought what do I do for the last 12 years of my working life because then in the early 80s you had to retire from full-time employment age 60 do I stay put do I change direction do I do something completely different well it was taken out of my hands and I said yeah I'd be very interested so off I came to Australia Did a massive tour with the Queen, which included, um, and I'm going to rattle through it very quickly, Perth, um, Hobart, Launceston, Geelong, Longreach, Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra. No, Sydney, Albury, Newcastle, Canberra, uh, which was about three and a half weeks. Got back to, well, had a meeting uh, in the yacht that was moored in uh, Sydney Harbour with the private secretary. Lasted all of five minutes. Then I went and joined the party aboard. (laughs) <laughs> uh, got back to London, met the then press secretary. Again, another meeting all of five minutes and the job was mine. So I carried on broadcasting uh, till the end of June. I handed in my notice and started at the beginning of July. So it was kind of, I suppose, word of mouth. Doesn't happen like that now. It's got to be the full application, the full boards, um, several applicants. Um, because that's the way the law dictates at the moment. So I was pretty lucky and I enjoyed every minute of it.
0: Mm. Now, you wrote a book in 2014 on duty with the Queen. Now, in writing that book, Dickie, there would have obviously been a great deal of what you could call sensitive material that you'd have had to be very careful of in how or whether you included it. How hard did that make it in uh, presenting what is a written portrait of your time in the role? (laughs) Well,
1: the book was an autobiography, so it was
0: obviously going to include my role
1: uh, as a royal, um, cor- uh, not correspondent, but uh, royal spokesman um, in my 12 years at Buckingham Palace. But it was an autobiography. I knew what I could say and I knew what I couldn't say. I knew what I could um, sort of report on, which was really gleaned from private conversations. Um, and I did submit. Um uh, the sort of finished manuscript to Buckingham Palace and I kind of ticked it, there was nothing contentious in it and, uh, and it was published and um, I sent a copy, uh, as one does, to the Queen, got a nice letter back from private secretary who said, you know, thanks very much, uh, Majesty's very grateful um, and, uh, and that was it. So it was pretty easy but it was a narrative, it was written in a way that it was me speaking rather than, um, uh, it was written in the first person rather than in the third person. And and I felt, you know, if I'm going to do something about me, it is about me um, and about my voice. And a lot of people said, well, I can hear you talking in it, which was quite a compliment because the the way I wanted it written came across.
0: Now, it's 21 years since you moved on from being uh, the press spokesperson for the Queen. Dickie, in moving on, from such an incredibly high profile and would have been a demanding role, um, was it hard for no, one reinvent? No, not, yeah, no, not,
1: not not really hard. Um, I knew I had to retire at sixty. Uh, the laws changed, obviously, uh, since then. Now you you retire at sixty five or sixty seven. You can go on, but. Then, when when I turned 60, we weren't civil servants, but we followed civil service guidelines. That's how the system worked at Buckingham Palace. So I retired at 60. I knew I had to go at 60. And two years beforehand, I'd already started making plans what I was going to do next. I'd got an agent. The agent got me a a contract with uh, one of the major broadcasters here um, on a retainer for a year. And um, I turned 60 on the 25th of September, and I took a day off. I had to retire at midnight on the 24th, took a day off on the 25th, and went into broadcast at the BBC on the 26th. So it was pretty seamless, and I've had a lot of fun since. I do a lot of TV, Did some. Uh, I do Channel 9 quite regularly uh, in your neck of the woods. Uh, I do quite a lot of uh, speaking engagements on cruise ships and on land in the UK and in the United States. So I'm having a lot of fun. My daughter keeps saying to me, when are you going to retire? And I say, when I'm dead Um, or if the voice goes (laughs) and the the brain goes, then I've I've got no choice. But as long as I've got my wits about me, my voice and I'm fit, uh, I will carry on. And I intend carrying on for at least the next 19 years when I turn 100.
0: Absolutely, and uh, and you'll get that lovely letter from the royal family. Now, your daughter Victoria her I understand, has been a commentator, is a commentator in the royal family for CNN. Um, do you ever feel compelled to give her some fatherly advice, uh, having been so close to the royal family yourself?
1: No, I do not give any fatherly advice. Um, I, will, I will give her answers um, to questions that she might have. She does it all by herself, Um she got parachuted in by CBS uh, in 2011 for the uh, William and Catherine wedding. And she's been on a, on an upward plane ever since. No, she she phones me occasionally to ask me questions to sort of check historical facts. She's um, working on the basis that this this memory of mine will trawl something, uh, a little nugget for her. And occasionally there is a nugget. But no, she she does it all by herself and all power to her.
0: Time's on the wing, Um, Dickie. I know you've probably got a full book of uh, things to do today. Um, In closing, looking back on your years uh, working um, with the royal family, all relationships are symbiotic to some extent. Uh, How much of Dickie Arbiter do you think remains uh, in uh, in, uh, Buckingham Palace and how much of uh, that is in Dickie Arbiter?
1: Well, there's no Dickie Arbiter remaining at Buckingham Palace. Says they, they, Buckingham Palace. They, when you retire, you retire. Uh, I'm not one of those people that hangs on by his fingertips, um, wanting to sort of stay within within the fold. I've retired. I've moved on. Uh, I've got another career, this is my next next career, and uh, hopefully my 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 last one. So Dickie Arbiter is far removed from Buckingham Palace. He's not far removed from the airwaves, and it will continue as long as his voice and his brain holds up. Uh and enjoy life that's what life is all about it's about enjoying yourself uh enjoying what you're doing enjoying the company uh, uh and just generally when you wake up in the morning you look out and think i'm alive today thank you god and you move on
0: that's a wonderful a wonderful philosophy and one that should inspire all of us as we pass through the through the lives we have thinking it's been a an absolute pleasure and uh, an honor to speak with you um Many people in Australia know you really well for a variety of reasons, and it's uh, it's been uh, I'm very thankful that you found the time to to chat with us here down under today. Well,
1: thank you, Henry. It's my pleasure. I always like talking to Australia, whether it's talking to you or talking uh, through Channel Nine. It's, it's it's a great privilege to know that. What we say here in the UK, uh, relevant to the monarchy, and that you still have a monarchy, even though you had a referendum in 1999 which uh, went the way of the monarchy rather than the other way, it remains to be seen how long you'll remain a monarchy with uh, Barbados having gone. Um, will Australia retain the monarchy? Watch this space.
0: Well, that was Dicky Arbiter, a British journalist who carved out a, a famous niche as, uh, as the press spokesman for Queen Elizabeth II. And... Uh, I think most importantly in the years since then has uh, demonstrated that uh, one door closes, another one opens, and it can stay open for as long as we, we want it to, God willing.